On this episode, I'm in the room with Jen Wilkin discussing biblical literacy, Bible study, and women's ministry. Welcome to In the Room, episode number 31. I'm Ryan Hughley, and if you're listening for the first time, I'm the founding and lead pastor of Redemption Bible Church just outside Chicago. You can find lots of ways for you and I to connect online by visiting my blog at ryanhughley.com. That's H-U-G-U-L-E-Y. In the Room is your opportunity to eavesdrop on my conversations with interesting people. Every week, I sit down with people that have varied backgrounds, perspectives, and vocations. So I end up talking with pastors and professors, authors, and artists about their stories, their crafts, and how they do what they do. On this episode, I'm in the room with Jen Wilkin. Jen is a married mother of four and spends a good deal of time trying to further one of her great passions, which is helping women learn to love God with their minds through faithful study of His Word. As a result, she's a sought-after Bible teacher and has recently written an excellent book entitled Women of the Word, How to Study the Bible with Our Hearts and Our Minds. She and her family live in Texas and they're members at the Village Church where Matt Chandler is pastor who's also been on the podcast. In my conversation with Jen, we're discussing the epidemic of biblical illiteracy, the method that she uses to help people learn to study the Bible for themselves, as well as a few issues surrounding women's ministry. For a chance to win a free copy of Women of the Word from Crossway Books, stop by my blog, ryanhugley.com, and share the giveaway phrase on Twitter. Now get comfortable and come on in the room for my conversation with Jen Wilkin. Well, Jen, thanks so much for coming on The Room. I really appreciate it. Looking forward to talking to you about your new book, Women of the Word. And uh, one of the things I really like about the book is the way that it reflects your deep passion to help women specifically learn to study the Bible for themselves. And so I wonder just how you ended up becoming a Bible teacher yourself. Uh, It was probably a fairly convoluted journey. I uh, started by attending women's Bible study uh, soon after the birth of my first child and basically went because I wanted to get out of the house and, you know, actually put clothing and makeup on. Yeah. And also had had an interest in Bible study for a long time um, and just, you know, combined with, I think, the social need was what got me there. And then um, the more exposure I had to what typical women's Bible study was like, the more I could feel growing in me a sense of, well, I would do it this way, or I would do it this way instead of the way this was handled. And I remember one time in one of the studies I was in expressing a disagreement with what was had been taught that week. And uh-huh. it was like this room full of women just all gaped at me, like, how could you disagree with what was said? Yeah. And at that point, um, a woman uh, who was in leadership pulled me aside and said, I think maybe you have a teaching gift. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and, and so then I began writing my own curricula and teaching my own classes, mainly just because I had such a, a focused idea of what I was hoping to see happen. And I, I wasn't finding that in the resources that at least I was coming across in, in the circles that I was in. And so what, what you have then since then really tried to provide is just straightforward, like studying of the actual text, correct? Yes. And training yes. people to do that for themselves. Yes, that's right. Which is awesome. Uh, but I do like to qualify it. it I, I do want women to study on their own. I want them to be growing in their comfort level with reading the Bible, reading and studying the Bible on their own, but never with the intent that it would only happen on their own. Right. That's good. And so what about your, just your own faith journey? Did you grow up in a Christian home? 
I grew up in a Christian home. My mom was a believer and a single single parent house, and we were in church, but we were in many different churches. I think it's a pretty typical experience of single moms that they rarely fit very well in church environments. Yep. So we kind of kept on the move, and that exposed me to a lot of different denominational settings. And I think that's, again, where I started to develop this sense that there were many people teaching many things with great conviction, but they weren't all teaching the same things. Yeah. And I uh, wanted wanted to get just a better footing in just what does the Bible say? Because there's really no other measure for discerning whose message is truth and whose is error, or whose is closer to the message and whose is further away if we don't have that firsthand knowledge of Scripture. Yeah. So I think a lot of my desire for that was birthed out of that experience. That's interesting you say that about single moms. My biological dad left when I was three. And mm -hmm. uh, I remember, not when I was three, but by the time I was five or six, I think we were going to a Methodist church on Sunday mornings and a, an Assemblies of God church on Sunday nights. Yeah. <laughs> and then my mom, when my mom, the man that she remarried who adopted then my brother and I was Seventh-day Adventist at the time. So we were there on Saturday. So we were really like just making sure we had all of our bases covered. Right. <laughs> So, um, so when would you say that you actually came to faith then? How, how did that happen for you? Uh, I can't really point to a specific time. I, it was probably sometime in early elementary school. I can't remember a time when I wouldn't say that I knew the Lord or had a relationship with him. I couldn't have articulated the gospel to you clearly as a, yeah. as a five and a half year old or a seven year old. In fact, I don't know that I could have articulated it that clearly until I was probably in my twenties. Yeah. But I look back and would say that I had saving faith way before that. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, one of the things that you, one of the most common important themes I think that you stress in the book is the importance of biblical literacy. Yes. And, and I was wondering in your experience, how biblically illiterate are most Christians in your own estimate and the people you work with? Like it's, it's a pretty significant problem, don't you think? I think it's pervasive. Yeah. I think it's pervasive. I think it's kind of the church's dirty little secret Although that implies that we're keeping it a secret on purpose. I think we've just sort of overlooked, for whatever reason, this idea of growing in literacy has has fallen by the wayside. And I, I think there are probably multiple factors that have contributed to that. One that I would point to is the vanishing mid-sized teaching environment within churches, hmm. particularly as we've shifted more towards a, a groups model. I think what we've seen are fewer and fewer places where people actually gather for the purpose of studying uh, we gather to discuss or we gather to uh, be vulnerable with one another or to have community, uh, but we don't always gather to actually study, to designate the time for study, much as we would like in a classroom setting. How would that and, differ practically? Sorry to interrupt you, but how would that, because I, I think that, because we don't have that at our church currently, right. and I remember growing up with that. Right. Um, so how would, so like at our church, like I'm a Bible preacher, much like right. I know you're at the village, Matt's a Bible preacher. Yeah. So how would the midsize us gathering to study, how would that differ than what's taking place on Sunday morning in a Bible preaching church? Well, preaching is, is one way. There's not dialogue happening in those settings. Yep. Many, many churches have moved completely to topical preaching. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, on top of that, the typical sermon series, unless you're straight up, straight up expository preaching, you know, you're going to take two or three years to go through a book. The typical sermon series doesn't last any longer than 10 or 11 weeks at the most. Right. So you're not going to have the time to tackle a book like Genesis. that has got 50 sure. chapters and do justice to it. So you're missing the dialogue 
dialogue piece, certainly, but you're also just for, because of time constraints, typically not going to take those big chunks of the Bible and look at them from start to finish and, and give them the close up uh, examination that we need to really internalize what they're saying. Absolutely. So it, it's, you know, it's not, there's not one right way to do church. I think when you, the, the mid-sized teaching environment going away is not something that we need to look at and say, oh my gosh, let's bring back Sunday school. But it does right. beg the question, where in the church are these things happening? Where are we purposefully doing these things? That's good. So all right, what about some other obstacles that are causing this biblical illiteracy? So the the uh, disappearance of the mid-sized teaching gathering is one. What would be some other things? I think the availability of resources, just the access that we have to commentary, and by commentary, I mean anything that is talking about what the Bible says rather than just actually spending first hand time in the text. So that's podcasts, it's uh, sermons, it's books you can read about the Bible, it's topical studies, which, you know, some topical studies are closer to an actual Bible study definition than others. Yeah. But uh, we just have such availability of resources and uh, so many people who are um, putting teaching commentary around the text and, and it feels easier. It feels more accessible sure. than for us to sit down. We, I, I would argue that we actually start to diminish in our own confidence of handling the text on our own. The more that we only sit and listen to other people do so, because we yeah. just think, man, how they do that. Yeah. And it becomes like wizardry to us. Yeah. So what do you think are some of the, what are some of the common excuses that you hear as someone who's training people to study the Bible, whether it be, you know, men, I know your book is written primarily to women, but men or women, what are some of the most common excuses that we tend to offer up to not study the Bible? Well, obviously time is a big thing that people would say is an obstacle for them. And I think that's certainly valid. I mean, particularly when you're talking about women, almost all women are primary caregivers for someone other than themselves. And yeah. so we, ha we tend to have less predictability with seasons of life of when we're going to have stretches of time. It's not universally true, but it's generally true. And so there are certainly time, you know, I'm a mom of four kids. I had four kids in four years. So wow. I know what a season of life looks like where you're like, I don't have time for a shower, much less right. to do a, an in-depth study of the book of Hebrews. Uh, but I think, you know, we, we need to look at this in terms of, well, we're going to prioritize spending time in the word, even if it's a little bit of time or even if it's intermittent time. And so the question then becomes, how can we best leverage that time in a way that is building something bigger than just something that lasts to get me through the day. So how can we take a long-term approach to the way that we're handling scripture? Yeah. Anything else outside of time that you see coming up over and over again? Or is that the biggie? Well, I think time is the one that people say. I think a lot of people are just unaware that they don't have Bible literacy. I'm in the Bible belt and around yeah. here we have just enough knowledge to feel pretty good about our level of knowledge. And yeah. we, we just don't even sense the need. We don't we didn't, we don't feel the extent of what we don't know. And, uh, so I think a lot of people just have the obstacle of actually uh, understanding what is Bible literacy? Like, do I even lack this? Cause I feel well taught, yeah. but we don't realize a lot of times that what we're often doing is just taking in what someone said about scripture, yeah. uh, with nothing to measure against. Yeah. From scripture itself. Well, we're not in the Bible Belt in Chicago. And I think one <laughs> of the reasons that your book is so important is I, th I would say one of the things that I hear from people is just feeling more overwhelmed at, at yeah. really not like uh, they would even identify, no, I am biblically illiterate. And I they don't, don't know where to start. I don't know what to do, you know, yeah, about it or exactly. So 
jumping into you know any book of the Bible can be very, very intimidating. But I am curious, because your book is written to women. My wife stays home. We have three little kids. And as you like, sometimes like survival alone is a win yeah, on some yeah. days. And so where do you have any, where, where do uh, women, where can they steal some of that time? Oh, I, Cause I really liked the way I did not feel, uh, and I'm, I'm not a woman uh, and I don't stay home during the day, but I really appreciated the fact that I know that when my wife reads this book, she's not going to feel guilty yeah. because you were really honest about how difficult it is and, and, and to do the most with what you have, but how do you, where, where are some places that women can kind of steal that time and find ways to do it in the midst of being busy? Well, it really obviously does depend a lot on life stage. Uh, yeah. There are legitimately times where you may not have big chunks of time to give to it, irregular chunks of time. And I do really want women to hear that you can trust that the Lord understands your life stage even better than you do. He's That's placed good. you there yeah. and, and that it won't always be that way. So I think some of the challenge for women is that they come out of a life stage where they truly didn't have a lot of margin for this, but they then enter into one where they do. But because the habit is not there from a recent season, it's hard for them to remember, oh gosh, I have time to give to this now and now I, I, I can. But I think that we all have some level of discretionary time, no matter what season of life we're in. Totally. And we're going to allocate it to the things that we care the most about. I'm not saying, hey, don't give 10 minutes to Facebook because you ought to give all of your time to Bible study. I'm just saying, when is the time that you're going to give to Bible study and how how will you use it? And again, to, to ask something of that time that maybe we haven't, we tend to, women in particular, tend to ask our time in the word or our quiet time to fill our emotional tank. Yep. And I think we need to have a, a higher objective than that. I think it will ultimately do that, but that is not the object of the time that we're spending. And I, I also would say we have sort of um, built an idolatry around the idea of daily time in the word, as though if you aren't spending your 10 to 30 minutes every morning uh, because Jesus, you know, had his quiet time right. in the morning with the right. King James Bible, yeah. um, then you've somehow missed the mark. And I, there are times where I will go, you know, four days and then I find an hour instead yeah. of 15 minutes for four days in a row. Right. And you can accomplish something different with an hour than you can with 15 minutes. So I think we shouldn't minimize the importance of, of using the time in the increments that it is coming to us and, and really leveraging it uh, to build literacy. Yeah. I think another thing I've been, cause so my kids are all three under the age of six is our oldest and all three of them are, are lousy sleepers. Right. So they wake up super early in the morning. So like to, to, to have that sort of ideal, I get up before my kids and this is just as, as a dad to get up before my kid, I'm getting up at like 4am and I'm yeah. not built for that and yeah, whatever, maybe <laughs> Jesus could do it, but I cannot. And, um, so I think even just for me, and I think this is, would be true for moms as well. One of the things that's been helpful just in the recent weeks, is sort of, you know, you see these pictures on Instagram because people insist on posting pictures of their quiet time. Yeah. Uh, and they're always these very idyllic, beautiful, serene, quiet, like that does not exist in my life. Right. And I don't think that exists in very many moms' lives either. But I think one thing that's been helpful for me is, is losing the notion that in this season of life, I have to be like sitting by a brook with deer and quiet and coffee for me to have an effective time in God's word. Like for me, it's been happening on the couch in the morning while my kids watch cartoons. Right. And, uh, and that might make me a crappy spiritual leader in my home, but that that's right. been when I'm home, that's been the place I've been able to get it in. And I think you got to take it where you can get it. 
Well, and I think too, you know, I mentioned that I first got involved in women's Bible study after the birth of my first child. I yeah. think it's a time when, uh, when you're in a stage of life like that, where structure uh, really can help you, where you yeah. have some structure and accountability outside of the time that you're putting in, in your home, because yeah. I needed to know I was going to be at this meeting once a week with these other women in order to prioritize the time to find, you know, to do the prep before I got there. Right. And really, that's that's what kept me teaching for many years was was I needed the accountability of knowing I was going to stand up and teach those women every Tuesday night. So I needed to find the time in my schedule to to keep in the word and in preparation for that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, before we talk about the process that you kind of lay out in the book, um, can you tell me a little bit about some of the you you are really specific and great in the book about some misguided ways that we tend to approach study. And uh, so so tell me just a couple of those. What are the most common? Common, like like incorrect, unhelpful ways we tend to approach God's word. Well, I, I like to always emphasize that the reason I'm so familiar with these is not by observing others; it's by practicing them myself for yep. so many years. So the the first one that comes to mind is the Xanax approach. Yep. That's what I call it. And the Xanax approach is when I use scripture basically to medicate whatever my current perceived need is. So say I've had a stressful day and I'm just exhausted. Well, I'm gonna read, you know, um, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Right. Oh, that makes me feel so much better. Or, oh, I'm, and now never mind that it's talking about rest for your souls. Like right. it's actually not even addressing physical rest. You know, right. we don't need to worry about that. Uh, you know, and then uh, let's say I've had a day where I was really anxious. So oh, I'm going to read Philippians four, be anxious for nothing. And that's right. going to, that's going to calm me down. Or maybe I'm having a bad hair day. So I'm going to go to the women's ministry, go to verse Psalm 139, you know, yep. fearfully and wonderfully made. Yeah. Again, never mind that that's actually a passage that is describing a fearful and wonderful God and not how awesome I am. Right. I'm going to take that and I'm going to use it and just kind of get my emotional needs met by it. And we have all kinds of ways that we do this where we self-medicate with scripture. And uh, we don't just medicate ourselves. Like we're, we're dispensing Xanax to all of our friends via Instagram or text or whatever. And I, oh, girl, are you having a bad day? Oh, here, here's a verse for you, you know. Right. And um, the problem is when we take this approach to scripture where it's about how it makes me feel, we guarantee that we're going to leave huge portions of our Bibles unread. We're certainly not going to be Instagramming Jeremiah 17, 9, above all else, the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I don't want to read that I'm a wicked rascal when I've had a bad day, right? So anything that is going to convict us of sin or anything that is maybe really boring, like a genealogy or a land allotment list, probably not going to show up in my quiet time. So um, when we are medicating with scripture and asking it to meet us on our terms rather than coming to it on its own terms, we're, we're just not going to gain exposure to all of it. Right. So, and so, also we're, you know, we're feeding our own needs. We're right. saying, Hey, do something for me instead of looking to see what would it have us learn. Right. So I can't remember. I think there's like six in the book. So that's the yeah. Xanax approach. Give me one more. What's another one that's common? Um, well, there's the picky eater approach. That's where I really just think the new Testament is great, you know, but the old Testament kind of scares me. So I'm just going to hang out there. It can look like that, or it could be, uh, gosh, you know, I'm a woman, so I just really need to hang out in Proverbs 31 and Ruth and Esther because those are the pink parts of scripture. (laughs) Uh, and, and so anytime that we do that, where we're sort of, you know, picking and choosing the parts that we're most comfortable with, we are, we're denying something that scripture says is true about itself. And that is that all scripture is God breathed and profitable. Right. And if it's all God breathed and profitable, then we should probably be working to spend time in all of it. 
Right. So, uh, so that's another uh, push that we need to work toward. Sorry to interrupt the conversation, but I wanted to share a simple way that you can help support In the Room. As you know, most weeks I'm talking with someone who's written a book about something. Now, I love books, and I know firsthand how expensive it can be to try to keep up with all the books that you'd like to read, including the ones that you hear about on this show. And this is why I'm so excited about our new partnership with Givingtons.com. Like Amazon, they sell books at discounted rates, but here's what's great for In the Room. When you buy a book through our store, we receive a portion of that sale to help continue bringing great weekly content. So for whatever featured book we're discussing on this week's episode, we receive a full $2. And for books from past episodes, we receive $1.25. Now, you've probably heard me say this before, but I want to help get this podcast to as many people as possible, and I need your help. So will you keep spreading the word on social media, and will you consider buying this week's book through givingtons.com? Just go to givingtons.com slash in the room. There you're going to find not only this episode's book, but books written by past guests as well. So check out our new store at givingtons.com slash in the room. Thanks so much for your help. And now back to the conversation. That's good. Uh, that portion of the book is really convicting for sure. Cause there are, I think, I think anyone that has done any amount of reading or study will find themselves somewhere reverting to those at some point, but you right. do lay out like any good Bible teacher, you have five P's alliterated. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that really spoke to my soul in the midst of that. So thank yeah. you. And, uh, so you've got these five, the, this, uh, five steps, basically purpose, perspective, patience, process, and prayer. And I really want people to buy the book in order to fully apply these five things, but maybe just briefly, uh, help me understand these five things. So what does it mean to study with purpose? So when we study with purpose, we're looking for the big story of the Bible. We're looking to see what is the story that it's telling from Genesis to Revelation. And then how do the smaller stories within that big story, how do they contribute to it? So rather than just looking at one little portion and letting it stand on its own terms, we're trying to say, how does this portion of scripture contribute to the overall message of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration? That's good. That's a part that I really feel like for me, I, I missed that growing up for sure. Oh, I totally did. I grew yeah. up in the church and I it was really probably not until geez, six, seven years ago, maybe, where I first started to hear some teaching on that and that ultimately the whole Bible's telling one story and that every text should connect back to the larger story. And it was just a very I mean, I think I understood even Bible stories very well. I went to Christian mm-hmm. school my whole life, but really understanding how it was all connected was lost on me. Yeah. So I think that's so important. All right. So then uh, secondly, you have study with perspective, which is a, a largely about historical context and that, correct? Right. I think that a lot of us have missed the idea that before the Bible was written to us, it was written to someone else. It has an original audience and they are an ancient original audience. And so we need to try to take our modern Western eyes and ears and thinking and try to get into more of an ancient Near Eastern mindset. When we read, we need to try to honor the way that a passage or a book would have hit its original hearers. Because whatever meaning the text holds for us, it won't exist independent of the meaning that it had for its original audience. So that requires us to become archaeologists. Yep. We have to ask some basic questions about a text before we read it. We need to know who wrote this, to whom was it written, 
when was it written? Uh, what are the major themes? What genre is it? And then we take those questions and we place them around our reading of the book so that we can, and you know, we're not great at this. Like I'm not an expert in ancient Near Eastern culture, sure. but the church has been richly resourced with, with people who are right. and can help us in this. And so we can reach out for help on that so that we can try to uh, frame what we're reading in its proper uh, cultural, historical uh context when we dive in. But then there's also the issue of just textual context. You don't want to just take a passage and pull it out of the the greater context of the book that it lives in. So, um, you know, I saw this clearly in my, in the study that I lead, we, we were studying judges last semester and uh, the story of Samson was one that most of us have grown up with. You know, it was like one of those felt board stories that you feel like, you know, And uh, as we were studying it within the context of the whole cycle of the judges, well, he's the 12th judge. And so when you understand that book as a, as a trajectory that is just disintegrating throughout the book and you get to his story, you don't have permission to turn him into a hero at right. that point because you've seen this downward spiral and it right. changes the way that you interpret that whole story because of where it fits within the context of the whole book. Right. I mean, even like the even just a specific verse, I, I think that's epidemic for sure. Yes. Um, you know, the like, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens right. me, I think is such right. a, a classic one. And and so every kid grows up thinking they can be president as long as they pray hard enough. And uh-huh. uh, that's just crazy that Paul's talking about contentment there. And, right. uh, and that context piece is so important. So right. thirdly, I really like this one. Uh, why is it so important to study with patience? Well, I think that we think that Bible study should be easy. It's so interesting to me because I think that we feel like, you know, we understand that that discipleship, being a follower of Christ, is going to be something that will entail difficulty. But for whatever reason, when it comes to this piece, to Bible study, we think it should be magical. We think the Holy yeah. Spirit is just going to open the scriptures to us. And, and we lose our idea of the word disciple being linked so closely to that word discipline. Yeah. And that this is a practice like anything else that does require uh, some diligence and some patience on our part, but that over time our patience will pay off. And the example I usually like to give is just if you think of anything that you are proficient at, like let's say you're really good at playing the piano. Yeah. The first time you sat down at the keyboard, you felt like an idiot. Right. You felt like your fingers didn't work right. You didn't know how to read the notes. And and by the time you finished doing that, you you still felt dumb at the end of the lesson, but then you came back and you did it again and you came back and you did it again and again and again and again and again. And over years you grow in proficiency. It does become easier. I don't know that it ever becomes easy, but you get better at, at, at uh, practicing that discipline Yeah, and it brings you joy. Yeah. And I would say the same is true of Bible study. At first it feels really hard and unwieldy and like, there's no way I can ever feel proficient at this, but over repeated approaches and using the right tools, putting good tools around it, learning good practices, just like my piano teacher would always want me to get my hands at just the right angle to be able to play correctly. And I'd be like, well, surely I don't need to do that. She doesn't know what she's talking about. But there really were tried and true methods that would make me be the best pianist I could be yeah. with practice. Bible study is the same way, Yeah, but it does take patience. It definitely does. And I think, I think that I think unintentionally good preaching can can help us or can cause us to think that it's easy as well because I think you hear some preacher get up and I, I can't believe how many people, I still get asked, I was dropping my daughter or my son off at preschool the other day and there was a mom there and and she's like, so what do you do the rest of the week? Which I get asked all the time. Like when like... <laughs> 
Like I just stand up and wing it every Sunday. Right. And, uh, and, and since most people don't really know how long it takes to study. Yeah. They just think like this guy just like, he must have a gift or it must just like, when I open my Bible, it should just fall into three alliterated points as well. And it's just not like that. So I think even ministry leaders, whether that's preachers or Bible teachers or however, to find ways to appropriate, appropriately allow people into your own prep and yeah. how hard it is for you. And when you get stuck to be transparent about that, I think that that's because I just think that we can, as teachers, make it make it look more easy than it actually is. Don't you think? I think there's some of that. But I think we also assume that they already know what we're doing to prepare. Yeah. We lose we lose sight of the fact that they don't actually know what goes into it. And so it's so I get the question a lot. How do you prepare to teach? They'll mm-hmm. say, oh, you wrote this book on Bible study. Will you tell us how how to learn to teach? And I'm like, my teaching prep is the study method. Like yeah. what I just told you, totally. that's what I'm doing right. to prepare to teach. Now I understand there's more to teaching than just, sure. you know, exercising the tools of good study, but that is so much of it. And that is my hope is I want to demystify what happens when I stand up and teach. And yeah. I want you to hear what I'm saying with more of a critical ear because you're understanding how I got to the points that I'm getting to. And you're thinking, Oh, you know, I would have said that differently or I saw this in the passage in the time that I put into it. So, right. yeah. Well, your fourth one is that process one. So what just briefly, what is your, your process that you go through? It basically has kind of three parts to it, correct? Right. It has three parts to it. And if you, you know, to a lot of people, these would be familiar. If you've ever spent any time sort of learning about how to study the Bible, I do change up one term. I use comprehension as the first step. Some people say observation. Yeah. I, I like the term comprehension, first of all, because at the time I was putting together this acronym CIA, I was not aware of observation as being what was out there that people were being taught. Okay. But when I heard observation as the first step in Bible study, something about it just didn't hit me the way that I wanted it to, because to me, when you observe something, it sounds subjective. Yes. And, and I really am looking for, um, an uh, objective reading of the text. I want you just to answer what does it say? And, and, and I think we, we tend to think, what does it say to me too quickly? Yep. But there is an objective truth. There is something that the person who wrote that text intends for you to understand from it. Yep. And, and so, uh, you know, the reader is, is digging for that truth. They're not assigning that truth. So comprehension for me is just nailing down what does it say. And yep. so we put some tools around that. And really, I, I'm mainly asking people to go back to some of the things that they learned in high school English. Uh-huh. Uh, like people will say, oh, how did you train your kids to study the Bible? And I'm thinking, well, actually their high school English teacher did. I just said, you need to do that when you're studying scripture as That's well. Great. Yeah. A big piece of this is just treating the Bible like a book. Right. Because it is, it is a book. It is way more than a book, but right. at the very least it is a book and we should treat it with the same level of respect that we would give to any other book that we read. Yeah. So, so we read, we read at, starting at the beginning and then we read all the way to the end of whatever book it is that we're going to be studying after we've done our archaeological work. And then we start reading it again. You know, yeah. we you got to do repetitive reading because it's hard for us to sort of get close enough to the text. And some people, they're not great with repetitive reading. And so they can listen to it. We have all these ways that you can, you know, get the word inside of you that we used to not have. You can yeah. download version and listen to it while you're exercising or while you're in the car, but just get those repetitions in so that the words are really starting to settle in. 
uh, write things in your own words. So uh, paraphrasing is a huge tool, huge tool that has helped summarizing, um, outlining anything that is helping you break down the order that is built into what it is that you're reading. Uh, my, my biggest help that I try to get people to use is to print off a copy of the text double spaced with wide margins. Yeah, I thought that this was awesome. Is, it's what I use for my teaching notes. Like people will say, what does your teaching outline look like? And I'm like, it's my, I'm holding up, you know, it's my notes. It's right. my double spaced copy of the text. And then you can mark up repeated words and phrases. You can write questions out in the margin. You can write, here's an attribute of God that I saw right here. Uh, and you can look up words in the dictionary and just say, oh, what does that w- word mean? You can check multiple translations uh, so that you can compare how one translator phrased it versus how another translator phrased it. Um, I would add just as a little note of caution to be sure that you're distinguishing between a translation and a paraphrase. That's good. I, I love the message. I think the message is great. And, and paraphrases have a place, um, but they are better regarded as commentary than they are as uh, another translation of the text. So you should really save them for the point in the learning process where you're ready to start looking at, at right. commentary. They're what someone said about scripture. Right. So, so um, comprehension. And then your second one, you move on to interpretation, interpretation, correct? right? Yep. Which is where we move from asking, what does the text say to what does the text mean? Yep. And so for interpretation, we start checking, and these are not hard and fast divisions for how you use the tools, but we start checking cross references to see where other places in scripture have talked about a particular idea. And um, we start trying to um, draw out meaning. And so you're going to you know, think about what was that historical context that I had? How does that change what this particular passage might be saying? So you start building out. And, and I know that other people could tell you what the interpretation is here. This is where we get tempted on this. What does yeah. it mean? Is where we want to run to commentary. And so I push on um, my students and people who are reading the book to say, hey, defer looking at any commentary. So that means podcasts, all the things we talked about that would follow, anything that someone is saying about what you're reading, defer spending time in any of that until you have earnestly tried to comprehend and interpret on your own. Doesn't mean you're going to do a great job at it, but it means that you are going to be loving God with your mind versus loving him with someone else's mind. Yeah. And that's, so one thing that's been really important in that for me is just, I think the, the way that it has increased my confidence in the Holy Spirit. Yes. And, uh, cause I mean, I think that for a long time I had just been relying on other people's work and, and thought that God clearly had spoken to other people, but, right. um, it's been really, really helpful for me as a preacher over the last 10 years to rely on the Holy Spirit to wait until the end to check. I use commentary now more as a safeguard than anything else to make sure that I'm not seeing something that is, you know, not there. Right. Um, and it's just much more. I just think you're robbing yourself more than anyone else. You're really robbing yourself. Well, and you, until you've gotten close to the text, you can't, you can't choose between commentaries to know which one is getting the closest to what right. the text says. You know, any three commentaries will probably tell you three different things. Right. I do think the biggest challenge for the for the average student uh, when it comes to not looking at commentary is related to study Bibles, because most of us own and love a study Bible. Yeah. And I think they're fantastic. They're great, particularly for answering our archaeological questions. Yeah. But then I would say you probably need to put that son of a gun on the shelf. Right. And you need to print out your copy of the text, something that doesn't have the notes right at the bottom of the page, the commentary that you can just pop your eyes down to when you start to feel dissonance, yeah. that dissonance of not knowing hit. 
because that's something I think we have to be pushed toward, you know, that whole requirement of patience yeah. is there because we don't like feeling like we don't know something. We don't like to feel like a dummy. And, right. and if you have the notes right there, you're able to remove that dissonance immediately. But the dissonance is actually a necessary and beneficial part of the learning process. We Absolutely. don't have the aha moment until we have really felt the extent of the distance between what I know and what I don't yet know. Yeah. So we've got comprehension, interpretation, and then finally, we're trying to get to application, correct? Yeah, application. And I qualify the way that we should be talking about application. Uh, I also like for people to sort of assess how often it is that they go immediately to application when yeah. they're reading. They just want to say, well, how does this change me? Yeah. And you, you cannot reach a proper application for what you're reading until you have fought for comprehension and interpretation. But the other important piece of application is application doesn't just happen in a void. Application, how we should be changed by what we see in Scripture is shaped not by how Scripture shows us ourselves, first and foremost. It is shaped by what Scripture is showing us about God. And so so we start by reading and asking, what does this passage teach me about God? That is the starting point. And so say I'm reading a passage that is describing that God is just. And so I get to the end of my study time and I say, okay, well, I saw here, I saw the justice of God happen in this way, in this passage. Now, how do I see myself in relation to the justice of God? Because there's no true knowledge of self apart from the knowledge of God. As long as I'm measuring myself against Ryan, I can feel like I'm a pretty just person. But as soon as I have to measure myself against the justice of God, I see I'm actually unjust. In fact, if I offend someone, I want grace. And if someone offends me, I don't just want justice. I want vengeance. And so I now see myself in a true light. And then that breaks my heart. I ask the Lord to change me. I repent of my sin and I ask him, Lord, make me just as you are just. Make me someone who extends grace and mercy when I am offended and who cries out for justice on the part of others when when they suffer an offense. So it's just a different way of thinking about application. Totally. And so then finally we get to, we've seen purpose, perspective, patience, process, and then the final step. Really, it's not even the final step, the way that you write it. It's throughout the whole thing. But really all of this is supposed to be bathed in prayer, correct? Right. before Before you study, you pray. During your study, you pray. After you study, you pray. And I know you're thinking, if you're a young mom, you've got to be kidding me. How am I going to work in time for all this prayer on top of all of this study that you apparently want me to do? Obviously, I'm giving you an ideal picture of what this could look like. And I want you to just take the pieces that you're able to use at this time and start implementing them. And so particularly with prayer, it's so important for us to just confess our great need for the Holy Spirit to show up in our study time. Uh, before we begin. And then as you're studying, if your mind is wandering, or if you are sensing there's something, you know, that's going to convict you personally of sin, and you don't want to see it, or you want it to be about someone else instead of about you, you know, ask the Lord to keep your attention fixed there and ask him to teach you what you need to take from it. And, you know, after your study, ask him to write those words on your heart, let them change you, let you be altered by them. But uh, yeah, prayer is the thing that changes our Bible study from an intellectual pursuit to an act of worship. Right. So we've mentioned uh, study Bibles and commentary. So um, I was just thinking about this. So, you know, limited budget. Um, what are the what are the sort of the fundamental resources that you recommend to people that you really should try to own these these resources? A, a lot is online now, so if there's free right. ones online as well, then feel free to recommend those. But what is kind of the base you should really have these things? 
Uh, I definitely think you need a good study Bible. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that it's helpful. It has been helpful to me to have either a systematic theology text or something that boils down a systematic theology text that can sort of help with some big general concepts that you want to keep in front of you. Do you have a specific um, that you like? Well, I like Burkhoff. I know everybody okay. likes Wayne Grudem, but yeah. I got Burkhoff before. I don't know if Grudem wasn't around or what, but that's what my husband gave me for my 30th birthday. And I just love him. Uh, you are a think- special kind of wife that you were happy about getting Burkhoff as a, so that's pretty awesome. Well, okay. I don't know that he's the most readable, yes. you know, but I, I think even if you wanted to just go with Grudem's uh, Christian belief, I think it is yep. sort of the, sort of the boiled down yep. version. I think that's a good place to start. I know R.C. Sproul has a, a good one as well. That was really useful. Um, and uh, the, the, the title is escaping me, but it's something yeah, like too. basic belief, yeah. basic yeah. Christian belief or something like that. That was a really good one. So something just as a reference point, and then really what's been a good go-to for me with regard to finding uh, reliable commentaries has been, uh, first of all, if you find someone who you know is reliable and you like, troll their footnotes and see who they're drawing from. That can really help you. And uh, I've really liked, um, Keith Matheson has put out a list of top five commentaries of every book in the Bible. I think it's through Ligonier, and you can go out there and look and see what his recommendations are. And what I've liked about it is, that he'll sort of say this one's more scholarly or this one's right. more accessible. And so he gives you a range of choices. Yeah. And, and so that's been really helpful to me. Bestcommentaries.com is a helpful website as well. Oh, I'll have to check that out. Yeah. And that, that list, so that's ranked. There's reviews written. It also lists them as like pastoral or devotional or technical. They'll, that, that'll kind of be there, but that's been a really, really helpful resource for me for finding commentary. And as far as a single volume resource, I know people have translation preferences, but the, I really think the ESV study Bible yeah, as far as study good. Bibles go, is is one of, if not the best, single volume resource. Yeah. If people can pony up for that one, it's definitely yeah. worth it. All right. Well, I want to finish. I want to talk a little bit about women's ministry to close. Sure. If we could. And uh, so the book is written to women, though... I mean, I benefited from it for sure. Anybody yeah. will. But I think it's important that we have a book like this written to women because admittedly, there's not very many. Right. Um, and your passion is teaching women. And women's ministry can take a lot of different forms. Some of them <laughs> very good and some of them will just say not so much. Uh, so when you think about uh, women's ministry, what is it that women need most? Uh, oh, I don't know if I can boil it down to one thing, but I would say that Typically, in in most churches, particularly more theologically conservative churches, the number of environments where women gather as a single gender are few. Mm -hmm. And so they're uh, really important. It's important that we think about what we do with them. And um, I think if you look at just what the social sciences are telling us, they affirm the differences between men and women. Uh, You know, obviously, we don't want to paint with too broad of a brushstroke when we say those things, but women value different things when they gather than men do. They value collaboration and consensus, and they are going to contribute to a discussion differently in a mixed gender than they would in a single gender. In fact, studies show that they might not contribute at all, or at least not with a lot of vulnerability in a mixed gender setting. And so um, I think it's important for women's ministry to uh, guard single gender environments and leverage them for the most good for those women. So if you think about it, uh, in in a conservatively, theologically conservative church, there are many environments where men can hear teaching by men. Yes. But there are very few environments where women can hear teaching by women. So I think we need to be really looking for ways to 
raise up women teachers and uh, give them um, uh, environments where they can practice their gift for the benefit of the body. Uh, the gift of teaching is never given by the Lord um, frivolously. It's only given to achieve a purpose within the body of believers. And so as soon as we acknowledge that women are given this gift and it's a needful gift, then I think it's important for us to make sure that it's being leveraged. Yeah. So what are, what are some of the specific reasons that you do? I mean, we talked about differences in general, but why is it, you've got a good section in the book on this, why is it so important that women be taught by women? Well, I think that a woman teacher has an empathetic authority with women that a man might not. So one of the one of the clearest examples I can give of this is I've, I've done a teaching before where I address women on the idea that they have um, in their flesh every 28 days a parable is told about the shedding of blood for the renewing of life. Mm-hmm. Matt Chandler's probably never going to say I'm that. Never going to teach that. Yeah, exactly. But yeah. this is something that the Lord has given to women that teaches us something about the gospel that is unique to womanhood. And of course, there are all kinds of analogies you could draw around childbirth. Um, yeah figurative, you know, uh, analogies that you can draw. So I think there are biological differences that are obvious that a woman teacher can address, but it's not just that we sure. tend to have experiences, you know, that are unique to women. We have besetting sins that are different than the besetting sins of men. Many times it's very difficult for a male pastor to, uh, tell women to stop doing the things that women might be tempted to do because they're looking at him thinking, well, you don't know me, you know, you right. don't know my people. Yeah. And, uh, a, a woman can say, no, I've been there and I, I know what you're going through and I'm telling you, you can resist and flee. Yeah. And so there's that aspect um, to it. And then um, I think there's just the whole Titus two idea of, um, you know, there's a mentoring that I can accomplish with women that uh, a man can't yeah. uh, necessarily. And so those are all really good things. And, and there need to be environments where those things are, are being allowed to, to happen and yeah. to flourish. All right. Well, my last question is, um, I, as a young church planter that I'm aware of, I don't currently have a Beth Moore or a Jen Wilkin in my church. So how would you encourage uh, pastors, church planters, ministry leaders to raise up women to teach in the church? A couple practical things, maybe. Uh, someone in your church knows who this woman is. Someone, you know, someone is sitting in your church who every time she listens to teaching by another woman teacher, she's thinking, Oh, just give me a chance. Cause I could do that. Like mm-hmm. I was that girl, you know, mm-hmm. I was in the church where we did video driven studies and I was just like, if you would just throw me the ball, just throw me the ball, you know? Yeah. And, and it, it can be hard because to have a video driven study say that's, you know, your go-to cause you're not a very big church. And I think that's a valid place to start. But I think as soon as you can identify someone who's sitting in a small group, who's just champing at the bit, the girl who's contributing probably more than she should, because she's just burning up with all this stuff inside of her, start finding a way um, to give her opportunities to teach. And she's going to need regular opportunities. You know, we get better at this with iterations. It's not just with one-offs here and there. And so she needs a place to do it, you know, with, with a handful of women who are committed, you know, for maybe a five week study, and then they give her feedback. And she's probably in a small church going to need a 
a pretty good connection to you as the pastor because you're going to be able to resource her with, hey, here are commentaries you can use. She can capture. Capturing audio is so easy now. She can capture her teaching and she can ask you, can you give me some time to just listen to this and critique it? And, uh, you know, I would caution that you don't want to critique a woman's teaching on, on maybe necessarily exactly the same terms that you would a man's. I think Mm -hmm. we have different approaches and different styles that are valid, but different. Yeah. Uh, but she, she needs, women need the buy-in of, of male leadership to be able to flourish in these roles. And so I think particularly in smaller churches, it starts with a pastor or a male staff member saying, I'm going to make it a point to keep an eye out and keep an ear out for who this woman is. And then I'm going to place tools within her um, reach that she can grow in this gifting that the Lord has given her. Because it is ideal for one of your own women to be teaching the women in your church. That's great. Good advice. And uh, now I got to figure out how to come up with that. So <laughs> now I have a takeaway. That's good. Uh, Jen, thanks I'll so much. I'll check back and see how you've done with okay, it. Okay, yeah. good. Yeah, that's what I need is some accountability. Uh, the book is really, really great. And uh, and I'm not personally not aware of another book like it specifically written to women. So for that reason alone, I think it's so, so important. So I'm so excited to be able to help spread the word. And thanks so much for your work on it and for coming on in the room. I really appreciate you having me on. My thanks to Jen for her time and for the great conversation. And don't forget that you can enter to win a free copy of her new book, Women of the Word from Crossway. Simply stop by my blog, ryanhugley.com and share the giveaway phrase on Twitter. Then this Friday, we'll choose a winner at random and the book is yours. On my blog, you'll also find how to stay connected with me via Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, as well as any additional show notes that you may want from today's episode. Until next week, I count it an honor to learn with you. I love you and thanks for listening.